we're about to start. My name is Trish Quigley, and the, the person with me is Sandra. Um, the fire exits, you can see behind you, and there are two exits. Um, you can see what the, the name of this session is, so you, are you all sure that you're in the right place? Um, the nearest toilets are out there and go to the first stairwell and go up to the first floor. That's the closest toilet. Um, and also at the, at the closest uh, stairwell, stairwell B, is a water fountain if you get very thirsty. Um, and there's a coffee break immediately after at 10.30. And then the next session begins at 11. So we'd ask everyone to be back at the sessions for 11 o'clock. Um, and the, there are afternoon tours of lots of different libraries, beautiful libraries around Dublin, and they'll be starting from the Campanile, the bell tower in the front square in Trinity. And I'd urge you all to come, because we have some beautiful libraries around Dublin, in addition to Trinity College. Thank you about these practical notes. Uh, dear colleagues, let's start with our session. Uh, my name is Kristina Bay, I'm from Estonia, Tartu University Library and Estonian Libraries Network Consortium. And I'm so happy that, that today we are talking not only about digital things, but as well about uh, our old collections and uh, about open access. So it's uh, like a mixture, but um, I'm very, very happy that uh, we hear today about sale and disposal, about impact of special collections and future of collections as well. So please, our first presentation will be by Kate Kelly and Mary O'Doherty from Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Please, floor is yours. Good morning. Kate Kelly and I are here to share our experience with you of the sale and disposal of collections, evidence-based decision-making, and professional choices. We have a lot to cover, so it's going to be rather rapid. Um, I will cover the historical background and uh, the challenges we faced, and Kate will then take over. So, um, and you can see the outline there. RCSI is Ireland's only standalone health sciences campus and Ireland's largest medical school with three overseas campuses and a research institute which produces recognized high impact research, particularly in the clinical sciences. The Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland resolved to establish a library from the time of its foundation in 1784, 
with one guinea annually levied on each member of the college to defray the expense. These were the books of polymaths in the era before specialization. Learned and literary doctors and surgeons are rarer nowadays, but in previous centuries, apart from medicine, they read the classics, literature, history, travel, natural history, and the emerging sciences in Latin and Greek, French, German, and English. All these subjects and languages were massively represented in the RCSI antiquarian library, so that the content was far from simply surgical or medical. Journals also constituted a sizable part of the collection, along with a valuable run of pamphlets. It was never the intention to part with certain elements of the antiquarian library, just with the extraneous items. Incidentally, records of previous sales came to light, a precedent for disposal by selling. In his account of the RCSI library, Professor Widdes, the librarian, states that by 1954, the library had grown to over 30,000 books. These were amassed by purchase and donation, and I want to add, by <clears throat> dumping. Students qualifying from the RCSI Medical School over the decades accounted for a significant lot of battered, coffee-stained textbooks clogging the shelves. Not to mention members of the public clearing out their attics. Here you see uh, the RCSI library in 1947. It remained essentially the same until 1986 when the first professional librarian was appointed. Um, this extract uh, from the annual report of the librarian to the RCSI Council for 1982 to 83 states the problem, and it warrants quoting in full. There still remains the basement area beneath the main library, where the Arthur Jacob collection was housed. Many hours have been spent sorting this collection and moving it temporarily to a drier area. But about half of it has already been thrown out, as many volumes were in such a state of decomposition from damp, etc., that they disintegrated upon touch. The condition of the leather suede bindings of many of the remaining volumes is such that, 
unless they soon receive expert attention, they too will have to be discarded, as it would seem that a slow-eating fungus is attacking them, a precedent for disposal by discarding. Scholars consulted these books elsewhere, in the great antiquarian medical libraries of London, Europe, and the USA. Indeed, libraries in Ireland held a good number of these bo books in usable condition. Increasingly, they were also available as digitized versions. The log of researchers visiting the RCSI library shows how rarely anyone came to consult the antiquarian books. The state of the bindings was poor indeed. Not so obvious until we began to examine every item closely was that more than the bindings was damaged. At every level, collection, set, and individual volume, serious defects became apparent. Missing volumes, missing title pages, and missing plates. Thus, for a great part of the antiquarian library, value of every kind had been eroded and compromised beyond repair. The external and internal condition of many of the books constituted a problem beyond the resources of RCSI. Whatever the monetary and intellectual value of the antiquarian library, its condition decimated its worth. Likewise, its intellectual value, since it was unusable, as it was no longer possible to handle many of the books. The poor relation of the antiquarian books was the collection of archives belonging to the RCSI. These too had been relegated to basements in college. A dehumidifier bought in 1986 yielded nearly a gallon of water each morning. These one-off irreplaceable records were key to the history of the college, the history of surgery in Ireland, and of other Irish medical institutions, many already defunct. Needless to say, the log of researchers visiting the RCSI library shows that it is this material, available nowhere else, that they came to use. Many of the antiquarian books consumed the limited resources of space, staff time, and money. They provided no return to RCSI, and worse still, were to the detriment of the other unique elements of RCSI heritage. While one organization could not hope to restore so many books to good condition, many owners 
of just a few books certainly could afford to restore and maintain them. Thus, paradoxically, while the books would not last for long as a collection in the care of one owner, split up among many owners, the books have every likelihood of enduring into future centuries. Incidentally, that is one 1600th volume that we did restore. And now Kate will continue our sharing. Morning, everybody. From Mary's description, you'll now have a good idea of the challenges we face, the scope and scale of our antiquarian book collections and the condition of the existing college archives, to say nothing of the emerging digital black hole of more recent records. This timeline gives you some idea of how long it took from our starting point of actually finding and fact-finding until the time we have been able to realize the value of the, uh, the sale. Um, in 2008, in the midst of a period of widespread austerity, there was no existing budget for the collections and it was unlikely in the circumstances that one would be forthcoming. Other, other sources of funding were not available to us at that time, so selling the books was an obvious option. However, we still had a lot of unknowns. We didn't know exactly what we had. We didn't know its intellectual or monetary value. And most importantly, for most of the items, we didn't know why they were there in the first place. So we had lots of anecdotal information and we had lots of opinions, but we have few reliable and independent facts. So we decided to seek evaluation ostensibly for insurance purposes. And that required an inventory before we could even get the um, evaluation we needed in inventory, which was a massive task. We had to create that one um, from catalogue cards and shelf listings, put them into Word documents, and then import them into Excel files so that we could actually sort them. Then the challenge for us was actually finding a valuer who was capable of doing that kind of valuation. It was a large specialist collection, and we had two people turn us down because they were totally daunted by the task before we got a recommendation of a semi-retired former Christie's valuer. So he came in and he did a valuation for us. It took uh, four to six months uh, with every item on the list that we had created needing to be verified as being on or not on the shelf. So we had a lot of disappointments and frustrations when time and time again items thought to be in the collections were not on the shelf. And if you read the annotations of our valuer, a, a man called Nick Nicholson, um, you can see his growing frustrations. He had uh, NTS, was a very common abbreviation, and we think that meant needless to say. Needless, <laughs> needless to say, not on the shelf, needless to say, missing. So, but this report was absolutely fundamental to our decision-making because it gave us hard data for the first time, and it was a basis for our eventual proposal. It included several recommendations, and one of which was to sell duplicates and non-core items and to focus on the history of medicine, surgery, and anatomy and reflect the interests and activities of Irish surgeons. So shortly after receiving that report, and quite by coincidence, Sotheby's happened to be on a regular visit to Ireland. So we invited them in to have a look at our collections. So evaluation for insurance purposes is not the same as evaluation for sale, and we felt that indicative information on sale value would further inform our decision-making, especially since the insurance report had remarked upon the very poor condition of the books. So this, the visit by Sotheby's turned out to be very timely, and after appraising the collections, they verified the findings of the report about the condition, 
but they also gave some indicative market value, which was really important at the time. So once we had our valuations, we considered four options, one of which is always doing nothing. Um, so that was not a runner from the start, and joining with a sister organisation. But eventually we settled for this proposal, which you see on the screen. And in January, so we started uh, evidence gathering in 2008. It was January 2011 before we got the proposal stage um, made to the RCSI Council, which is the governing body of RCSI. So which was accompanied by, it was basically a one-page business case with a list of items we proposed to consign to Sotheby's. And I also did a bit of a show and tell, um, so to illustrate the condition of the book collections. And the most damning example we had was um, the natural history of Carolina, Florida, and the Bahamas. This had sold in Christie's uh, for 241000 in October 2010. Just two months later, in December 2010, Sotheby's advised that our copy was, and I quote, of no value in this state, missing, as it was, all the colour plates that made it valuable. So unfortunately, that was a fairly common example uh, occurrence. And when we showed the, ex the example of our archival material, you know, the, the decision actually was really easy to make in the end. We had no compelling reasons to keep the books. Um, and once given the support from our senior management and council was actually really solid and it gave us huge confidence in going forward. So we now formally engaged Sotheby's to conduct a sale. So again, they came in and they spent a number of months with us. So we had two valuers, they were experts in different time periods. Um, so they came in over a period of months um, to select items for sale in London. And it meant for us reorganizing the books yet again. Um, so we had a really good handle on our content at this stage. So the material we consigned to Sotheby's was only a tiny part of our collection. They take the most valuable items, and I can't remember the, the exact amount, but they have a, a baseline for which they won't go below. Um, so it's only about 70 items that went to them. And even those that went were not guaranteed to be sold, because once they took them and took them to London, they discovered um, some turned out to be either imperfect duplicates of books they already had in or were deemed not to be worth as much as originally hoped. So the question then arose, you know, what do we do with those that they can't sell, plus the majority of the collections not taken by Sotheby's? So this was, um, we got a recommendation for a company in Edinburgh called Lyon and Turnbull, who came and had a look, and they decided they could take a lot of it. So our Sotheby's sales were done in three months, uh, May to July in 2011. Our relationship with Lyon and Turnbull lasted uh, almost four years and only ended in January 2015. They took everything in this large truck and they stored it um, over those years while they conducted the sales. So they, they did a sale every three months, so we did about 15 sales in total with Lyon and Turnbull. So disposal, that's disposal by sale. In addition, while our, our objective was to maximise our return, we also saved material we knew um, would be useful elsewhere in Ireland, and we made donations to a number of institutions in Ireland. So, as I say, um, the results were ring fence, and while we were still undergoing sales, we, um, we, were, we were actually lucky enough we got into a bidding war over three items in particular. So that enabled us to actually hire an archivist fairly quickly while we were still doing the sales, and so we started boxing and cataloguing. As our timeline illustrated, we started moving fairly rapidly to digitization and to creating a web presence for ourselves. Um, and since 2016, 
we have been adding much more, being much more visible about creating added value for the organisation. So we do a lot of public outreach activities such as exhibitions and participation in cultural um, events. This is our 2016 commemoration um, exhibition, which was created by our archivist, the most popular public engagement activity ever by the college. And in the last two years, we've been integrating heritage into the core educational activities of the college by participating in the college research summer school, where students get to choose to work for six to eight weeks on research projects of their choices. Susan Layden is our archivist in yellow there, and these are some of the outputs from the research summer school um, and instruments, a book on, on innovations in instruments and a public seminar on the Spanish flu. Um, our most recent project, though, is this uh, most significant, is an 18-month project working with our Office of Equality, Diversity and Inclusion to put women on the walls of RCSI. And this was involved the heritage team right from the get-go in terms of identifying um, women, um, finding portraits, doing the biographies, um, and up to the unveiling, which was actually then doing the tours. Um, so that has been really significant value that we've been able to add from from the sale of the, the, those books. Um, our final um, benefit will be we've just signed up to use Preservica, which takes us into digital asset management, which will enable us to actually preserve the records in, into the future. Um, I think we just wanted to say for us, while well, the case of selling antiquarian books was in the end fairly clear cut, it was not without its challenges. So we thought we'd like to make some points about professional issues and standards. So in setting out on our decision-making journey, we try to follow ethical guidelines set by the professions such as SILIP and to follow due diligence in identifying provenance and contacting families and donors where we could. We took legal advice and followed the communications advice given us by Sotheby's and our own communications departments. Nevertheless, there were individuals with their own, within our own profession who choose to pass judgment in a very public way um, without, I say, having any knowledge of our special collections. Um, and our antiquarian books in, in particular. So they wrote to newspapers, they tried to rally support by contacting the Library Association, by contacting academics and individual library directors. <coughs> and unfortunately, as you see above there, some people actually did lend their name to that um, without checking the facts. Um, and I think the, the good thing really was that the majority of the profession didn't engage. Um, but I think it's worth saying that these, uh, these decisions are never taken lightly by an institution. And I think we need to trust our colleagues when they make these decisions that they are in the interest of their institutions and the collections that they have responsibility for. We've been able to do a huge amount for the value of the institution by, by selling those collections. Um, and having taken almost a decade from the start to where we are now, these are our five takeaway points. So prepare and plan, use the right agent, which is absolutely critical, um, communicate with stakeholders and the public in particular, um, ring fence the proceeds. That was the core decision that we got um, approved and record and photograph the process. So that's a rapid fire through 10 years of work, but I um, hope you found that of interest. Thank you. Thank you both very much. You have done huge work. Other questions? We have time for at least one question. If not at the moment, we will proceed. So our next presenter is Cristina Camposiori, Research Libraries uh, 
Consortia from United Kingdom. She will talk us about measuring the impact of special collections and archives in the digital age. Yes. Um, so good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for having me here today. So my presentation uh, will report on some of the work we did recently in Research Libraries UK to better understand the ways our members um, uh, measure and evidence the impact of their special collections and archives. So my presentation has, uh, has two uh, parts. At first, I would like to give you some more background information around uh, Research Libraries UK, more specifically our special collections program, of which uh, this work uh, was part, and then move on to present uh, the results of our report, um, as well as finish with some recommendations that came out uh, from the report. So for those who are not familiar with RLUK, so we are um, a research libraries consortium. Uh, we have 37 members, and uh, that includes some of the big uh, university libraries in the UK and Ireland, as well as the national libraries. And then we, uh, last year we launched our new, new strategy, the Resaving Scholarship, uh, that you can find on our website. And we have two key strands in this strategy. The one is the open scholarship strand, and the other is the collective approach. So um, regarding the special collections program that we currently run, so this is part of the, no, excuse me. So this is part of our um, collective, of our, of our collective approach uh, strand of the strategy. And we're currently in the third year of the program, but when this was launched, um, so this was launched in 2016 though, and uh, it, uh, it had the purpose of setting up some key networks from within the membership and beyond, and organizing activities that could help our members um, improve access to special collections and um, also help them maximize their value and evidence the value and impact of their collections, support their staff's professional development, establish, establish leadership within the sector, but also um, enable them to develop collaborations and partnerships and facilitate the sharing of best practice. So uh, during the first, uh, the first phase of this program in 2016, so over a 12-month period, we identified seven challenge areas that our members were facing, and these were related, uh, were related to, the, to their audiences, to leadership, discoverability, significance, recognition, funding, and collective involvement. So we uh, ran several um, workshops and events across the country to explore further these issues and, and uh, take some... Um, uh, collect some data that we can then bring back to uh, inform, us, to inform our strategy. As part of this first phase, we also um, look to uh, develop, and as I said earlier, to develop some uh, key networks and relationships, both uh, within the membership, that means bringing some of, the, um, some of our uh, special collections professionals together to discuss some of these issues, as well as uh, create links between uh, uh, our collection professionals and then uh, other institutions and stakeholders like funders and researchers. And we also collected uh, some uh, case-based evidence that showed the potential of, uh, of the collections in our institutions to achieve, uh, to achieve impact and also um, looked to raise awareness around the work that was being conducted as part of the Special Collections Programme in events and conferences such as uh, the DCDC in UK, which aims to bring um, collection, uh, collection professionals and other professionals for the broader uh, cultural heritage sector uh, together. Uh, 
So for the next uh, phase um, of, of the program, uh, we looked to embed these relationships and further um, develop our networks, especially um, the networks uh, with uh, academics involved and involve them in our current work. And we also, uh, for that purpose, we organized more events and um, workshops around the country and um, had a stronger presence at, um, at, at conferences such as DCDC that I mentioned before. And we also worked with the National Archives in the UK to uh, launch uh, the Professional uh, Fellowship Scheme, uh, which aimed to uh, award up to four fellowships per year. And um, th these fellowships last for a year. And um, as part of these fellowships, uh, we also facilitate exchanges between our UK institutions and the National Archives. So moving now to the second part and the results of this report. So when we conducted this work, we aimed to make the work of our special uh, collection staff uh, more visible and um, help identify best practices as well as uh, raise awareness about the special uh, collections program and its work, uh, but also um, explore some of the issues that arose during the, um, the first phase of of the program, such as uh, we wanted to explore the pathways that are currently followed by research libraries to increase the value and impact of their unique and distinctive collections, uh, to uh, understand what types of impact can be achieved through special collections, and also look at how research libraries currently capture and evidence the impact of their collections, as well as um, look for the successful characteristics uh, of the characteristics of the characteristics of successful impact. Um, uh, case studies. So for this, uh, for this reason, for this work, uh, we used the, um, the data set that was collected uh, as part of the first uh, phase of the program and that involved 26 uh, case studies and I I'll, can say a, a little bit more about that in a moment. And then we used uh, that as the basis for development, um, a qualitative survey that was circulated across uh, the RL UK uh, membership uh, that helped us uh, explore further uh, some specific issues like look at the characteristics of successful impact cases as well as understand better the challenges that our members uh, faced. So, uh, thinking specifically about the case studies, so we uh, broadly we categorized these uh, these case studies uh, under three uh, broad categories. So uh, the places and spaces, people and projects, and collection-based research outputs. So this um, the first category. So included examples of capital projects, often involving collaborations, which have led to the development of new buildings and spaces that were deemed successful in terms of opening of, in terms of opening up new impact possibilities for the libraries and their special collections. Then the people and projects um, included mainly a collection of sound recordings and films um, featuring academics talking about uh, how they are using special collections in their work, but also included a collection staff showcasing and discussing <coughs> collections or part of collections uh, that had been the focus of recent access funding projects uh, that uh, fostered research. And then the last, uh, the last category uh, include mainly examples of research outputs from larger scale projects which uh, were based on either a single source or subject themes, uh, themed sources from numerous locations uh, in, um, around the UK and these outputs uh, ranged from online repositories and websites to digital humanities projects, exhibitions and narratives uh, which offered fascinating insights into the complex ways that our collections are, are used, are used in, in research at the moment. 
So um, 16 Aralik institutions took part in, in the survey that followed the analysis of these case studies, and our participants had to answer questions around the types of collections uh, they, uh, they had and the audience groups they served, um, as well as uh, whether, whether they had any impact definitions and the types of initiatives they were usually engaged with the, uh, engaged in with the purpose of increasing the impact of their collections and also look to understand the benefits and challenges they faced, as well as uh, the ways they usually um, were finding out about how their collections were used, and then um, look to see whether they used any uh, tools or methods for uh, capturing and measuring the, the impact from these collections. So as was uh, generally expected, there was a great uh, range in the types and formats of, of collections. And uh, here you can see some of, of the numbers around the collections, but also um, there was a range uh, in the sizes, um, uh, different sizes of teams that were actually involved in, in these activities of, of, uh, around in supporting uh, collections, but also in measuring and evidencing the impact. So thinking about the, uh, the definitions, so generally speaking, most of our participants said that they were um, employing the definition that their home institution was using at the time. So at this point, I should say that um, uh, mostly the, our participants were university libraries. So that meant um, uh, adopting the, uh, the definitions that their university was using at the time. And that often, um, often relate, was related to the, the REF criteria, uh, the Research Excellence Framework criteria in the UK. So, but there were some um, uh, some concerns um, expressed by some of our participants about the suitability of these definitions for the library, as this could be uh, restrictive sometimes, or can uh, or could, uh, was, it was or setting goals that actually was difficult from uh, to, to to be achieved from the library perspective. Then, as, as our participants uh, were mainly uh, university libraries, so the two key audience groups were the academics and, and researchers they had, as well as the university students, but many of the institutions um, were also serving members of the general public. Then um, the types of initiatives that as, as, um, came out through the case studies as well, there was, um, these were wide ranging. And uh, many of our members were involved in, in uh, creating new uh, buildings and spaces with the purpose of engaging new audiences through, uh, um, through their collections and other programs, as well as um, collaborating in various research activities like um, participating in funding proposals or, uh, submitting, or uh, submitting data for, uh, for case studies for their uh, research excellence framework, as well as um, being part of different, different networks and advisory group panels. In terms of the um, evidence of the types of, of data that was used as, um, as evidence of impact, this often included anecdotal feedback as well as a visitor visitor data from, um, from reading rooms uh, as well as exhibitions and other programs. Uh, this could also um, include uh, qualitative and quantitative data uh, from uh, metrics, statistics or um, interviews. 
um, as well as um, evidence uh, collected from academic champions uh, within, uh, the, within the institution. And uh, that was material that was used in classes as well as in other research activities. Then um, the, the impact uh, they, could, um, they, they made on external media uh, was also part of that, and assessment and evaluation reports. But also uh, an important uh, piece of, of evidence was the, uh, the citations when these were found. Uh, um, citations in publications, as these were usually meant that they were the collections could foster um, future, um, future research and following projects. When asked about the reasons why uh, they were engaged in um, this, this in these initiatives and projects, so the answers uh, uh, received illustrated the benefits that they usually could be gained through um, engaging in these in these projects, and this could include from uh, could range from um, improving access to collections and creating new items for collections like digital resources to having uh, in, uh, benefits um, internally like improving skills for staff and uh, working practices, as well as, um, of course, uh, building por portfolios of successful, um, of successful projects and case studies that could then bring more funding to the library. Of course, there were challenges involved, and two of the, um, of the most uh, frequent uh, challenges mentioned were, of course, resources. Uh, these initiatives were uh, frequently, uh, of course, uh, expensive, both in terms of, of of uh, funds, but also in time, in staff time, and um, when these, um, when some of these projects were collaborative, there, there could be problems in terms of negotiating uh, priorities for the library and advocating for the library, and especially when the uh, when the library was not seen as a full-fledged partner. So, um, so just going now to the ways they um, were usually, uh, these participants were usually finding out about how their collections were used uh, from, uh, were used in research and other projects. So uh, we, um, the results showed that it was uh, usually um, much more, um, more easy for them to understand how their collections were used within the institution and local community, but it was often very, very hard to track the impact um, that their collections uh, were making outside their institutions, like in, in international research. So they and they were usually um, finding out about uh, about how the collections were used through engaging, through developing relationships within their institutions and being part of different networks, as well as. Um, when they were receiving uh, direct, direct requests for images or text and other types of data. In terms of any, um, any specific methods and tool toolkits they were, they were um, using, so generally speaking, like the, the, the process of um, capturing uh, the, the impact was an ad hoc, an ad hoc activity, so, but there was, most of them were certainly interested in developing more structured uh, methodologies uh, for, uh, for tracking the impact of their collections. Um, like using, some of them also were inter interested in using uh, toolkits like uh, the European, um, the Europeana um, Impact Playbook, or or some toolkits um, provided by funders like the Making Digital Work Toolkit from the Arts Council England. Um, but um, also there were, um, however, there were some cases that again no structured ways or any plans for measuring the impact um, of of their collections uh, were mentioned. 
And just to conclude with some of the, the recommendations that uh, came out from the report, so um, we um, found that there is still, still the need to raise awareness about the impact uh, that can be achieved through um, that can be achieved through collections for uh, their home institutions, and uh, libraries who take advantage of the um, new uh, new tools and approaches for uh, measuring impact and reach electronically, and that can particularly help with. Um, uh, with evidencing the value for external external projects, or finding better ways to capture uh, the impact through um, citations and academic publications, that uh, would be really important. And maybe at this point, I should mention uh, a recent report that RLUK uh, has published a uh, in, in collaboration with CHISC and the National Archives around um, the around uh, this was a scoping work to better understand uh, how we can capture the impact of of um, special collections and archives through citations. It's called Citation Capture, and you can find it online. And also, there was the need to find uh, um, better methodologies for uh, capturing, for evidencing the two main categories of impact for, re for research libraries, and that was the academic and civic impact, as well as the long-term impact. And some of the funders were particularly interested in this uh, civic impact, and not just uh, on the impact uh, that the collections were making directly. On, on research. And also, as um, I said earlier, there were some um, concerns around the language. So given the terminology often used by universities to describe impact um, does not always serve the strategic goals of the library, there may be some uh, space there for developing a common language around impact that could better serve uh, these, these goals, the strategic goals. And um, also, finally, given that um, skills like um, collaboration, digital skills, communication were a very important part of, of, of this uh, of the process involved around uh, the capturing and evidencing the impact of the collections. So investing uh, in skills development uh, for staff will certainly um, facilitate these processes. So thank you very much. Thank you. Do you have questions? National University Library in Strasbourg, in France. I have a question. Um, more and more library or libraries or library associations are trying to calculate uh, the economic value of their activity, uh, the concept of return on investment. So I wonder if you tried to think about calculating the economic value of special collections. Uh, what part uh, of but the value on the return of, of investment uh, would special collection represent uh, within the activity of, activi of libraries. Uh, I, th I believe I saw two years ago a conference on this in the UK on this specific issue, uh, return on investment, the value of libraries. So I wondered if there is some kind of reflection specif uh, specific for special collections on this uh, issue. Yes, yeah, so um, there was certainly an interest, especially from uh, some of our member institutions, to uh, prove the, 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 the impact they had, the, um, the collections had on the local uh, economy. Uh, so, so, but again, this was um, they were trying to capture this impact through uh, through the um, the types through the, through collecting the, the types of evidence I uh, saw earlier, like. Um, um, 
like when they had exhibitions and they um, increased the tourism was increased in the area so they're trying to collect data from uh, from the visitor data from exhibitions and so on but the interesting part is really uh, tracking the long-term impact on on both on the economy but in the society in general so there are still no um, no concrete methods and structured methods that uh, we identify that could help with that but uh, certainly there is a need to to do that in the future uh, thank you. I, I wanted to ask, is it possible to me read more about those case studies oh, yeah. online? Yes, so the report is, uh, is published on our website um, uh, and then uh, the case studies, are we are planning to um, put them on the website as well. Um, Great. In a specific thank section. You. Thank you. So our next uh, presentation will be by Caroline Kimbell from University of London and she will talk us about securing the future of collections at Senate House Library. Thank you. Good morning. Two weeks ago, a story broke in the UK press of the discovery of a completely unknown eight-line poem by Siegfried Sassoon. It was found within the text of a letter kept among hundreds in the archives of Cambridge University Library by a PhD research student, Julian Richards, from Warwick University. And while the poem itself is as heartbreakingly poignant and elegant as you would expect, it was the words of his supervisor which struck me. Professor Carol Rutter, talking about impact, said more students need to go into archives and find out what they, can, what they contain. What's really exciting as a supervisor is to have a student who'll follow their nose and then have that tremendously exciting moment when something falls into their lap. It's an instant communication with the past, but it's also the beginning of the next question you want to ask. And after a long career in archives and libraries, I've been lucky enough to experience those electric jolts coming off documents and books many times over. A hand reaches out to you from the past in all its candle-wax-sputted immediacy and keeps you inspired through no end of budget meetings and strategy away days. But it's an experience which falls mainly to those students lucky enough to work in our august institutions, CUL, Senate House, or most impressively of all, here at Trinity. Giving researchers those moments of discovery is also a key ambition of online digitised collections. It can happen in the online world. Just think about all the uncut pages that have gone under the camera and no one had ever opened them before that moment of digitisation. It's a way of extending that opportunity to stumble upon something unrecognised, to feel that impact, and um, to make connections and discoveries hidden within the collections, which we may call special, but most of us have very, very seldom ever read every page. To outsource that digitization is the approach that we've taken for the curation, and it benefits us in curation and dissemination of the rare books and archives through international publishers, extending and expanding the speed at which we can open up those rare books and manuscripts beyond the physical reading room. Senate House Library sits at the heart of the Federal University of London, 
We're a shared central resource for the advanced study of arts and humanities, and we hold a rich, deep range of archives and special collections across eight key subject areas, including socialism, Latin American studies, and parapsychology. While digitization and online dissemination of scientific, technical, and medical collections has been generously funded by not-for-profit open access programs, as our next speaker will describe, the arts and humanities pose a tougher funding challenge. Special collections are disproportionately expensive to store, to care for in the face of slow-eating fungus and the like, and to produce to readers, very largely via slow analog workflows. In business terms, turning expensive, low-use material from the status of a business liability to an asset is increasingly dependent for us on publishers. All our contracts in that field protect the long-term vision of open access by limiting our licenses to 10-year terms and ensuring that images are deposited with us for preservation and reuse from the outset. But the scenario is only possible if our agreements give publishers the return on investment that they need to stay in business. Six publishers currently have annual rolling programs of content acquisition from Senate House Library, largely because we see, acquire, and manage our collections with the aim of reaching global online users, and because we've set up a team to analyze, identify, quantify, and champion content for digitization within those subject-based publishing programs. These publishing selection criteria are also embedded within the mechanism by which we decide on new accessions and acquisitions, and they're coming thicker and faster the, the better known this programme gets. Whereas in the past, collecting policies would often mirror the individual interests and specialisms of librarians or short-term teaching needs, each accession is now vetted by a cross-departmental collections group. Membership comprises the managers of our storage, modern and special collections, cataloguing, e-resources, licensing and engagement teams. Public engagement takes the form of summer and winter seasons of exhibitions, events and seminars, press and media to highlight the unique collections and holdings around themes which key into our current research activity, anniversaries or popular interest. Staging Magic, which closed just a week or so ago on the 15th of June, saw a record 2,200 uh, visitors, many of them first-time visitors, uh, to Senate House Library, and that's a tiny number compared to the number seeing the Book of Kells, but we're on the fourth floor of an office block, so it's, it's a bit different. Each new accession to our collection is evaluated not just for its intrinsic research and teaching value, but it's run past potential digital li licensees and through the lens of engagement and exhibition potential. For example, offered the papers of an investigative journalist recently, we know that a new online collection on the role of journalism in 20th century politics would offer an immediate licensing opportunity. One advantage of being a library rather than a keeper of government public records, my previous job at National Archives, is that we can offer exclusivity periods to our publishers within 10-year license terms in exchange for enhanced royalty and or advances. As is common in many long-established libraries, however, we're the heirs to generations of well-meaning but ill-defined loans and deposits, which have left us bearing costs and responsibilities for collections which we don't actually own. We own not the physical property or the intellectual property. Our licensing is based on contract, not copyright law, so that is a, a complete block. But when I visit other libraries across the university and elsewhere, conversations around licensing potential often falter over the vexed question, do you actually own this? 
If the answer is no, but we charge annual storage and service costs by the meter, then the organisation faces a clear choice between certainty of storage fee and income and the potential for higher income in the form of royalties investment or format shifting, deposited security images and free or discounted online access to the end product. We chose the latter approach. Yes, it's risk-based and we're working our way through historic loan agreements, renegotiating them wherever possible into full gifts with assignment of rights to the university. We've had some notable successes there in the last 12 months and only one huge collection which is still, still alone. But it's not a small task and for some organisations the certainty of rental income will always outscore um, the risk even with lack of accessibility, usage or the profile of a third party collection are factored in. The usage of hard to reach special collections is now very well established in the global e-resource market. This is one of our biggest online collections through Cengage. Um, and last year's sales reports just from this, this material from the Goldsmiths collection um, is being now, used, being, now being used in Mongolia and Brazil alongside more traditional markets in Europe, North America and Australasia. That's an outreach factor that the reading room alone would never be able to achieve, I think. As part of a federal family of colleges and institutional libraries, we're now also in the early stages of collaborative collection mapping exercise, where London libraries work together towards a shared evaluation schema. We're categorising special collections as flagship or must-keep, heritage, which we're obliged to keep, research and teaching support, and low priority. This approach allows institutions to compare and potentially exchange material what is low priority in one place, for example, London School of Economics, may sparkle as the most valuable treasure in another collection where it sits in its subject, more obvious subject area, and receive the use and profile it merits in a more appropriate setting. There is, of course, an inherent tension of what being one library amongst many between collaboration and competition for licensing business. The size of the global market for online research resources in arts and humanities is growing as more territories join the international higher education sector. But it is smaller than the SDM market. It's vulnerable to cuts in times of economic downturn and the sector is increasingly crowded. Every publisher needs to calculate the cost of content acquisition against potential sales revenue. Libraries with unrealistic expectations on, for example, staff oversight during scanning, detailed preparation of materials such as pagination or recataloguing, before allowing collections under the camera, or who expect collections to move to open access in an unrealistically short time frame, will slip down the commissioning agenda for publishers who typically need to see a return on investment of about three to one. That's actually the, the return on investment that our team at Senate House returns as well. We, we cost a third of what's brought in in income from special collections. The publisher, of course, will need that three to one ratio in order to gain investment from their finance directors and shareholders. We're seeing moves towards menus of license terms where, as in the open access monograph and journal market, payment moves from the consumer to the creator, with a few philanthropically funded archives paying publishers to create online archives. For example, Alexander Street's publication of the papers of anthropologist Ruth Benedict. These are early days for a hybrid approach, however, and the projects which fit this model are on a very small scale so far. Ruth Benedict's archive is just 8,000 images. There are a million images in each module of Making of the Modern World. 
Thinking in terms of return on investment, ROA, doesn't come naturally to many library professionals, especially in rare books and manuscripts department. But a determined cultural shift towards a more business mindset is underway at Senate House, driven by economic reality. There is, of course, a bit of scepticism and resistance, but the proof that licensing is a useful and beneficial way to serve the outreach and usage mission of our research library, while offering financial security, is compelling. In just three years, we've moved from demands for massive cost-cutting to a position where 15% of our annual income now comes from these commercial ventures. This income helps insulate us against the significant financial headwinds of pre-Brexit Britain and has put the library in a more financially secure position than it's been for many, many decades. With our special collections now managed as assets, we've won investment in major modernisation programmes, chiefly RFID tagging everything and open access and reclassifying from our baffling array of 15 catalogue systems into Library of Congress. And in turn, library is viewed no longer as a money pit, but as an essential asset of the Central University. One of the more exciting manifestations of this cultural change programme has been the establishment of a staff green shoots group. We've handpicked young, ambitious middle managers for their optimistic and entrepreneurial outlook, with a brief to brainstorm and model new business and fundraising in initiatives, drawing on the library's unique collections, heritage spaces and staff expertise. So far, we've entered a partnership with Trinity College Dublin here on their uh, matching Terry Pratchett uh, collection. Sorry, Pratchett. Our pilot projects include escape room events around Harry, Harry Price, the scary-looking parapsychologist, um, a cinema club, events celebrating collections of early computer games, conservation training days focused on such themes as basic conservation science, environmental and pest control, and the protection of heritage interiors when they're used as film locations. This concerted move towards diversified funding models spreads risk, improves financial security, raises Senate House Library's profile with worldwide researchers, and brings rigour to our appraisal and accession decisions also securing the future of expensive special collections and archives, which can so often appear unaffordable luxuries when viewed purely in terms of physical usage data. Commercial potential is never the only consideration, though, when accession decisions are being made. But its acknowledgement has brought very real advantages and benefits to the library so far, including increased footfall in special collections. Many people worry if it's online, people will stop coming to the reading room Actually, they start because they now have a massive global shop window for their special collections. And will, I hope, bring in its wake the investment in format shifting, improved access, discoverability, usage, and profile, which all our special collections deserve. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have questions? If you don't, I have. <laughs> I have a question to, to both uh, Kate Mary and Caroline. Okay. So how have you measured uh, the value of your collections? I mean, you both have, have told about the value and uh, what was the job of librarians and how much did you use uh, the external experts to say that this is valuable and, and this is not? 
Um, the <coughs> external factor in deciding what's important for us comes from the, um, the publishers who's, who are on the ground asking researchers what they want, you know, acquisitions librarians what they want to buy, where the demand is. So you can see trends over time. We had the medical history collections going back a long time, which 20 years ago people would have said, we do, that's, not, that's not what we do. And then there's been a huge increase in the use of those collections for all sorts of other subject areas and research projects. So um, hanging on to something because it's not proving popular this year doesn't mean it won't be in 10 years' time. But mostly it's, it's, it is demand-driven via that third party, via the publishers coming to us saying people want to read you know, journalists' papers or more, med more on medical and epidemiological or more women's collections or whatever. Um, we do have special collections which, um, with the best will in the world, no one has ever requested or looked at, and they are on the swap list, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. Um, so that, that's our approach. It depends on how you define value. Yeah, um, but for us, um, essentially, our, our special collections, and particularly the archives, were, were dead. Mm. They weren't being used, despite the college making a big thing about its heritage. It's uh, utterly transformed. They are now coming to us looking for services for fact-checking, for speeches, for all sorts of stuff. The fact that we are the ones who are being invited to participate with our Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Office on such a kind of public event was a big deal for us. Um, but that, I think that's just symptomatic of where we are now and, and, in terms of being engaged with the educational aspect, using the special collections and the archives in terms of student education is, is, is really a, a, new, a new change for us as well. So that kind of, it's, it's institutional value which we're seeking to leverage and which we've done. Thank you. Do you have questions? If no, then I'm glad. Thank you. I'm glad to introduce our last presenter. Uh, Ex-president of LIBAR, Mr. Paul Ayres, from University College London, and he will speak uh, us about open science in practice. <coughs> um, yes. yes. No, I, I'm right. Okay, got it. So I feel a little bit like a cuckoo in the nest because I'm not going to be talking about special <laughs> collections. <laughs> um, but I, I'm very glad uh, uh, and grateful to the organisers. Uh, in the Lieber conference today for fitting me in today. I was originally scheduled for Wednesday and I had to be in London to chair meetings, so I, I couldn't come to the scheduled session on Wednesday. So here I am on Friday. There, there is a link, though, between what I'm going to say and what you've heard so far, and that's really uh, about publishing and the building of collections through open access publishing, and that is going to be the main... Um, message from my talk, which I'm setting uh, in the context of how research-intensive universities in Europe are um, embracing open science, open scholarship, open research, and bringing new insights and new uh, modes of delivery uh, in, in their organisations. 
So, very briefly, this is what I am going to be uh, talking about. I'm going to talk about the LERU roadmap, the, the League of European uh, Research Universities, which is 23 <coughs> research-intensive universities in, uh, in, 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 in Europe. Uh, my, my university is, is uh, one of those, as, of course, is Trinity Cornish Dublin here in Ireland, and I, I know there are other LERU members in the audience. Uh, we wrote a roadmap on how to embed open science practices in our institutions. And one of the major conclusions from the uh, roadmap was uh, looking at future publishing models, which are, are what I'm going to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, how do you get academics to embrace these new ways of working? Well, that's the rewards and evaluation piece. So I'm going to say a little bit about how open science is trying to make a difference to how research is evaluated. What does success and excellence look like in an open science environment? And how do you bring your academics with you uh, in terms of giving them incentives to change the way they work and to change the way they think? Uh, I'll then come back to publishing, because this is the main focus of the talk, and say a little bit about uh, two publishing in initiatives that my uh, university is uh, developing, and then bring the talk to uh, a, a conclusion. So, so let's start with um, the LERU roadmap. So this is a roadmap uh, that was uh, signed off by 23... Uh, university rectors. It's the rectors who, who make decisions in, in, in LERU. They're advised by working groups, and I chair the scholarly communications working group in LERU, but it's the rectors that actually decide what the LERU policy is, uh, and they did sign off this uh, ro roadmap. These are the eight pillars of open science as defined by the um, European Commission. And these are the eight areas that the LERU roadmap actually uh, addresses. And the two in uh, orange are, are the two of the eight pillars, the two pillars I'm going to talk about uh, uh, this morning. The future of scholarly communication, which is a rather fancy way of saying what does publishing look like in an open science uh, world. And then some work we've done in, in UCL, which I've been uh, leading, on how to build open science incentives into the appointment and promotion infrastructures in the university, how you get your HR departments and all the heads of department to agree that uh, you need to change your HR procedures in order to change practice and, and, and culture. Uh, this is the roadmap. These are uh, the dots on the map show... Um, the locations of the 23 uh, LERU uh, members, there are, there are four of us in, the, uh, in England and uh, Scotland and one member in the Republic of Ireland, which is, of course, Trinity uh, Cornish Dublin, uh, one of our la latest uh, members to join us. Uh, the roadmap was launched almost a year ago, well, in fact, just over a year ago, this time last year, when the rectors signed it off. And we make 41 recommendations in the roadmap, which the rectors were comfortable with, about how to change the way their universities work and think to embrace open science as the default rather than a special exception. 
So in, in terms of a university statement about what open science means, it is probably the first um, such statement in Europe trying to um, identify what open science means at a university level and what changes institutionally and academically uh, need to take place in order for open science uh, to flourish. Uh, one of them, uh, one of the most prominent areas is the future of scholarly publishing. What does publishing look like in an open science world? And this is being shaped uh, by uh, Science Europe, the grouping of European research funders with, with, with Plan S, uh, which is a, a very, very bold and very invasive um, statement on how you change uh, where academics can publish, uh, how that's evaluated, uh, and how that is tied to the research funding that you receive from the uh, research funder. Uh, and in the UK, in, in my own country, um, one of our major, well, two of our major research funders, UKRI, UK Research and Innovation, and the Wellcome Trust, which is Europe's main biomedical funder, have both signed uh, uh, Plan S and will commit our researchers to uh, a really radical change in, in the where, where they can publish, because uh, unless publishers uh, change their policies, or um, uh, uh, the requirements change. 85% of journals and places where academics currently publish will not be compliant under Plan S. And funded researchers, funded by these research funders who have signed Plan S, will not be able to publish there after the end of 2024 20, uh, because the journals will not be compliant. And that's hugely controversial and hugely unpopular with most of our academics, certainly my academics in, uh, in UCL in uh, uh, London. And I think most of the academic feedback is that this is uh, an extremely challenging uh, position to take and challenging for universities in such a relatively short space of time between now and the end of 2024 uh, to change academic practice an academic culture if 85% of your places where you currently publish remain uh, non-compliant with, with Plan S uh, requirements. So the Lurie Rectors have issued a number of statements, and I list them here, uh, about their absolute commitment to open science, but also the challenges that moving to this brave new world in academic publishing actually brings. There are certain things that libraries are going to have to do in, in the wake of uh, Plan S, and these are the recommendations that Leru is making to, to all its members. You need to reach out to your academics to make sure that they are aware of the OA compliance requirements of their funders and that they will comply with Plan S uh, requirements uh, uh, when uh, Plan S is fully uh, matured and c comes into uh, uh, being in 2021, with, with 2024 as the goal for full transition to uh, open science. You go down the corridors of your university and say, what do you think about Plan S? You'll get a lot of blank looks from academics, because amazingly, many, although it's one of the major challenges facing uh, academic uh, publishing, many academics haven't heard about it or think it doesn't affect them and they can go away and do something else. Uh, 
but that absolutely is not the case, and it's the role of the library in an institution, certainly in mine, to do the advocacy about open access and publishing activity. So it's the library's role uh, to bring uh, these issues to their, their attention. You could do worse than look at the Plan S workshop that we held recently in Geneva last week in our OAI 11 meeting. This is a, a, a European meeting on scholarly communication that meets every two years. I, I have the honour to chair, chair those meetings. And we had a half-day workshop on Plan S and the many, many outputs from librarians, mainly attended by librarians from across Europe, have been collected together and available on, on Zenodo for, sh for sharing their insights into how you implement Plan S in your, your institution. Uh, if Plan S, in terms of uh, changing current publishing models, is difficult, there are other ways of doing it, and, and, and two ways are to look at alternative publishing platforms, i.e. Not, not go to commercial publishers, but set up your own open access, Plan S compliant, institutional OA presses, or you could um, uh, concentrate on developing your green open access uh, repository. Both those routes are uh, Plan S uh, compliant. I I'm going to talk about the alternative publishing platform, th th the first of those two, two routes in that list, because that is the route that we have concentrated on in, in my institution in, in, in UCL. So we have developed our own alternative publishing platform. It's called UCL Press. It's a department of the library, so I, I uh, established it and um, it reports to me, ultimately. We, we employ uh, 10 staff in uh, the press, all, all of them publishers. I said uh, at the start I didn't want to employ librarians to do publishing because it's a different set of skills and a different set of insights. So they are all publishers, and nearly all of them come from commercial publishing backgrounds but wanted to work in an open access uh, environment. So UCL Press is uh, the UK's first fully open access university press. We were founded in 2015. And, and this is the heat map is, a, is, a, is a, a record of the impact that our publishing ha has made so far. So we started with research monographs. Uh, I decided that research monographs were the most sensitive area in terms of publishing uh, uh, risks for uh, academics. I'm a historian myself by uh, training. And the, the research monograph market is very small in, in terms of numbers of sales, uh, quite expensive because the unit costs of research monographs are, are quite high because the publisher has to meet their costs and make a small, hopefully modest, profit based on their publishing, but the market is so small. So in a conventional publishing uh, environment, if a monograph, a research monograph, makes uh, 200 sales, that, that's a good outcome. And it's a tiny figure on a global scale to say, I'm selling 200 copies. I've done very well. It doesn't sound very open science to me. It's not about impact. It's more about surviving which is why the conventional book market is probably not going to survive in its present form, because the figures are too small and the margins too difficult. If you move to fully open access monograph publishing, 
environment, you can get results like this. So we have uh, published 106 books in UCL Press. We publish about one book a week at the moment. And these are the downloads. We've had 2 million downloads of those titles from the various platforms on which we publish in, in 231 countries around the world. So 15 downloads in uh, North Korea. Uh, and that's the only contact that my university has with North Korea. We don't have any other forms of reaching out to them, but 15 downloads in North Korea, and one download in uh, Vatican City. So that I'm interested to go back to the logs and see who's doing what on, on the download front. These, these are our most downloaded um, items. So the one on the left, the orange book, is by Danny Miller who is Professor of Anthropology in uh, UCL. And he's got a European Research Council uh, grant to study the impact of social media on uh, society. And uh, he's published a number of books with us because numbers two and three are also books from him funded by the same European Research Council grant. But the summary book, which summarises all the findings, is the first one, the orange book, How the World change social media, uh, and that's been downloaded 320,000 times since it was published just over two years ago, and in UK terms, uh, it's forming a ref impact case study all of its own for our national research evaluation exercise, because the impact, the penetration of that title, the number of countries where those downloads have taken place, there's a story there around how universities make themselves even more relevant to a society that uh, is beset by a distrust of universities, a distrust of truth, uh, and a feeling that um, false facts are better than reality. So in a university setting, open access publishing can help reset the relationship between the university and society by demonstrating impact. And that's the main reason my university wants to fund UCL Press, because it's putting UCL as an institutional OA press right at the head of that charge to redefine the way that universities relate to society. Uh, the book on the right is our first textbook. Where our, our second activity is to develop a textbook platform for uh, textbooks for talk courses. This was the first textbook that we uh, published. It's a, it comes from our master's course on burns and plastic surgery at the Royal Free, which is one of the teaching hospitals in the UCL family of um, hospitals where we put uh, students on a clinical uh, placement. And this textbook has been downloaded 60,000 times since it was first uh, published in uh, 2016. And I asked Deepak Kalaskar, the, the lead author, he's the guy in the middle in, in the mask, why, why he chose to publish with um, UCL Press, because he could have published with anybody, any, any commercial publisher would take a, a book on innovative burns and plastic surgery techniques and publish it, and Deepak could have made money. Um, it's a very short discussion in UCL Press when authors say, what are my royalties? I say, royalties, what are they? You're not, you're not, we don't pay royalties, so there's no royalty payments in an OA, not, not in my OA publishing world anyway. 
Uh, and Deepak said, well, I'm not interested in making uh, money. I don't want to make royalties. What I want to do is make uh, the innovative techniques that we've developed you know, in, in the hospital available to developing countries. And the best way I can do that is to publish as an open access textbook, because then that means the countries will have access, the students in those developing countries will have access to the material. And they wouldn't be able to buy, afford to buy multiple copies in the conventional paper monograph sales over the bookshop counter model. So the impact of open access publishing is brilliant. How do you get academics? How do you, how do you encourage? What incentives can you provide to academics to adopt this model and to move away from handing over their copyright and um, uh, to commercial publishers uh, and get, getting relatively small numbers of sales in, 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 in most cases. Uh, and the answer is to change your rewards and evaluation scheme in your university. So this is Bernard Rontier, who was a rector of the University of Liège in Belgium. He was one of our keynote speakers in uh, Geneva last week. And this is Bernard uh, giving his keynote address. And uh, this is his take-home message, which he brilliantly put at the start of his talk as the first slide. He said, if you only take away one message, take away this one, it will be impossible to implement open science harmoniously without a large, significant and determined consensus on new ways to evaluate research and researchers. The traditional way, the well-known way, is to look at just at publications, uh, your, your, your books and your research articles, uh, and if it has a, a journal impact factor, to use the journal impact factor and say, this is a good piece of work, it has a journal impact factor of X. That's the laziest way of assessing research that I know, and it's also the most erroneous, because journal impact factors tell you absolutely nothing about the content of an individual article because of the way they're uh, computed, because it's over a range of uh, articles, over a range of issues, over a number of years. It can say absolutely nothing, nothing about an individual article, and yet we use them to appoint people, and we use them to promote them, and we use them to evaluate them in annual appraisals. A completely erroneous way of working. This is Bernard's suggested um, replacement for the evaluation and um, appointment uh, reward um, activity. Um, he's done a piece of work for the European Commission, and they've just published their final report. Under six headings, he's identified 23 criteria that would provide a rounded evaluation of a researcher or a research group. Uh, and you'll see there, publications is the second bullet under point one. It's now not the only fruit in the garden. It's one of 23 points that you look at when you're enticing and encouraging academics to change the way they work and to work in an open science environment. And on the publications front, of course, if you're DORA compliant, if you sign the San Francisco Declaration on Research Assessment, which all Leroux universities have done, uh, you don't use journal impact factors as a means of evaluation because that's non-DORA 
compliant. So this is the new world. This is the new evaluation piece, uh, the new rewards piece that will encourage academics to move uh, along the way in the open science uh, uh, debate uh, and using alternative publishing platforms like UCL Press make a huge difference to the way they publish and how universities relate to society as uh, a result. Let me finish by coming back to two uh, points, in the, in, uh, two extra points in, in, in the publishing space. Uh, I, I'm in Ireland, so I have, I have to say this, I'm very proud to say this, that we do sell uh, publishing services from UCL Press to other universities who don't want to necessarily invest in their own infrastructure, in building their own infrastructure, but want to buy an open access publishing service from a third party like UCL Press. So Dublin City University here in Ireland is the first university to buy uh, publishing services from UCL. And Ellen is actually talking about the Dublin City University Press in another session this morning, side by side with, uh, with this one. They will be Ireland's first fully open access university press as a result of buying these services. UCL Press will do all the formatting, the copy editing, the typesetting, all the technical stuff and prepare the final manuscript for publication. But all the outputs will be branded as Dublin City University Press outputs and managed by an editorial board based in Dublin City University. So that will be the front end of the service and UCL Press will provide all the technical uh, support in the, in the background. If you're interested in that model, do come and talk to me afterwards or, or drop me a line. We are dealing with a number of inquiries from a number of universities who want to follow a similar model in an open uh, science world. Uh, and we also uh, cooperate with Operas, which is uh, an emerging European research infrastructure looking at creating an open scholarly communication platform or theories of platforms in the social sciences and humanities to deliver basically uh, the same outputs uh, in terms of concepts as UCL Press. So finally, to take these initiatives forward, we need buy-in from the community because the community, it's no longer simply about principles and practices, it's also about people. It's about winning hearts and minds, that's library colleagues, if you're looking at the publishing space and your alternative publishing activity is based in the library. And it's about researchers, if you want to work with, as we certainly do want to work with, our um, academics to bring them into the open science space. I have three suggestions for how we're trying to build this community in Europe. We have our OAI meetings, our open science meetings in Geneva. They happen every two years. The next one will be in uh, 2021, in June 2021, linked to the LIBA conference, or at least coterminous with, but not exactly at the same time, as the LIBA conference in Lausanne in Switzerland in, in 2021. We do deliver a series of open science workshops called Focus on Open Science, which we can deliver institutionally for you at your door. If you want to have a one-day workshop to engage with your academics and with other colleagues in professional services, we're doing 11 of these workshops around Europe this year. We're already planning the programme for uh, 2020. 
and we are just launching an open science crowd helix, uh, a collaborative platform for building partnerships and sharing information to bid for project funding in the open science environment. So if you're interested in joining a community that will uh, identify future European project funding opportunities and build communities to, to write those projects and to submit them for funding, do get in touch with the Helix administrator at that email address to join the uh, service. So my final slide, Open Science, is good for the researcher. It's good for universities. And we see it in my university as an opportunity uh, and not a threat. But I have to be honest and say whether Plan S will work as a means of delivering open access and open science remains to be seen because I personally... I'm quite doubtful. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much, Paul. And thank you for fighting for open science. <laughs> Do you have questions? Especially if you disagree, that would be great. Hello, Christoph Schmitzopian from Trinity in Dublin. Um, thank you very much. I just have a tiny corrective with your comparison yeah. of the, um, the book sales and the downloads, because yeah. I think you're comparing apples and oranges. Right. Um, I'd say 200 of those books that were sold, 198 were probably bought by libraries, and then you need to factor in the loans, the borrowing, the photocopying, and so on, if you want to. I don't think it will reach two million, so I think the point stands. But <laughs> All right. just to give libraries credit in the, the scholarly dissemination. Yeah, okay, that's a perfectly fair point. I am comparing two different sorts of uh, metrics, but uh, I'd agree with your final point that even then, if you take into account the loans, and if people still do, people still photocopy. I suppose they do. Um, you would you wouldn't reach the two million mark. Yeah. <coughs> The last question. If no, then please okay. could we show our appreciation to all the presenters today? <laughs> and thank you. Now we have a coffee break. You finished exactly on time. Yes. Chair more meeting.
particularly clinical in that first half.
Yes, thanks for the yeah, perfect. Yeah. Oh, you, do I, do this I is the overflow, but... Oh, yeah. Do I need to switch off the recording thing or do you? No, that's all. I'll look after all that. Mm-hmm.